Love Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, tragic violence in California brings mental health and gun control back to the forefront. Can America move forward on these critical topics? The fight in the Ukraine, the eastern provinces also tried to secede. What is the strategic nature for the United States? Special guest Dakota Wood from Heritage will join us for that segment. Veterans Organizations versus North Carolina Republican Senator Burr as he questions the motives of Veterans Services Organizations. We'll have the Paralyzed Veterans of America on the air at 5 o'clock. And tell me a story. This and, oh, wait a minute. This and tell me a story. This week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my 12 o'clock across the table today, she is the former general counsel to the Maritime Administration, former House counsel for the House Homeland Security Committee under Brain Thompson. She's the Honorable Denise Krupp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my one o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, longtime Senate staffer, and a very distinguished and handsome and apparently well-traveled fellow today from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Ah, thanks for coming in from West Virginia for this. You this bet. is nice. And to my right, he is the longtime Washington insider, and former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, he is Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And, and I just want to say uh, congratulations to my daughter, Julia, who graduated from the University of Maryland on Friday. Congratulations. Right. Nicely done. Yay. Well done, Julia. <clears throat> and to my left today, sitting in where normally Congressman Al would sit, he is our longtime friend. He is the former... Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Marine Corps, currently a very distinguished fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is former congressional candidate in Oklahoma, Colonel Dakota Wood. Hi, Colonel. Good to be here. It's good to have you back. We missed you, Colonel. There's a lot going on in the world today. We're, we're going to start off today. Oh, by the way, you can join the conversation. Uh, you can call us at 877-662-3713. Again, toll free. 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions to us at BackroomPolitik on Twitter, or you can email your questions to justin at backroompolitics.org. We're going to start talking about this tragic event that happened out in Isla Vista, Santa Barbara, California. Uh, for those who have not seen what had happened, the last Friday... Uh, a very disturbed youth, Elliot Roger, 22-year-old, goes out on a rampage, killing seven people 
including himself, wounds 13 others in what is a senseless tragedy. Um, he left behind a 107,000 word story, according to CNN, of what he called the, his twisted world, where he emailed his parents, his therapists, and everybody. He went on uh, YouTube and did YouTube videos. Uh, it is just a tragic story of a very disturbed young man. However, several of the victim, several victims, their families have come out and said that, and they one one father comes out and puts the blame on Congress that this could have been prevented had Congress actually done their job. And in several issues, in several instances, said that after Sandy Hook, they had the opportunity they did not. This is also brought to light the continued question of mental health care. Let, let's go. To, let's go to what this is. Let's talk about the gun control situation, first of all. He, I mean, he was carrying, according to uh, CNN and AP, a Glock, a, uh, he carried two six-hour pistols and two machetes, a hammer, and a knife. The, the, first of all, the guns are very powerful guns. You're talking about some very high-caliber handguns. But it does beg the question, Denise, I'm going to go to you. You know, when we look at this, we've got Sandy Hook. We've had several tragedies since Sandy Hook that have involved gun violence, and now this. Is, is the father wrong who claims that Congress, had, that Congress killed his son? Does he have a legitimate right there? Could Congress have moved on this? Congress didn't shoot the gun that killed his son, but Congress has had many opportunities to talk about legislation, and they haven't. I mean, when you have laws on the books which makes it more difficult to be a transportation worker in the United States than it does to be an individual, I mean, it, it takes more to be a transportation worker than it does to own a gun in the United States. You have to undergo background checks to be a transportation worker. You don't have to undergo the significant background checks they do to own a gun. And as long as Congress isn't willing to put down the law and say you need more background checks, you need more conversations, you know, between people who should be having guns and maybe those who shouldn't be having guns and until that happens. But you're, you're not going to have, you're going to, sorry, you're not, we will continue to have these problems. But, but Alan Moore, you know, again, this 22-year-old, he was seeing a psychologist, he was seeing a therapist, he didn't necessarily truly show signs of mental instability when he bought the gun back uh, in 2012, when he started acquiring guns, uh, is is this is this a matter of wait a minute? Congress can't babysit everything. Well, I I myself would not start looking at Congress, um, much as I'm totally good with uh, or supportive of the idea of more thorough background che background checks. California has a pretty tough legal regime for background checks. The states do have uh, a considerable authority here. Um, so I, I, I'm not at all convinced that had we had a different national law or that California had a different law that somehow automatically this tragedy would not have happened. I, I don't know all the details there. What we do know is this kid has been getting mental health care since he was eight years old. We know that his parents Last, early last week were so concerned about some of the things that he was saying that they notified the police 
who called him up and interviewed him and talked to him and came away convinced that he was fine. Well, they've got some explaining to do, but even then, I'm not blaming them. Who knows? These guys get called out. They do stuff. They follow their instincts. I watched the video, this kid's uh, video, and he's and he he sounded sane, even though the words were insane. He looked reasonable. It, it created this oddball Twitter following of people said, "Wow, he's cute." Some of these girls. Obviously, this guy was a creep, and all of his efforts to 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 date girls, and he probably went after the most stunning, beautiful well, girl. Well, you know, just the whatever girls that were that 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 had presumably many many choices looked at him, listened to him, and were creeped out presumably. But we all know there are lots of people like that around the country. They're not all gun owners, not all getting ready to go go out and, and kill people. The first three people he killed, he stabbed to death. Three guys. We don't know. Two of them were his own roommates. Yeah, we don't know just how that all happened, whether he held guns on them and then stabbed them. It's just a horrible, horrible case of, of sick mental illness that 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 isn't that, that's more about figuring out if there are better ways to identify mentally ill people at the same time reflecting on whether we have gun laws that make the most sense. But Carl Tubin, you know, we, we, we hear the argument for Second Amendment gun rights. You know, we hear the argument that the NRA guns don't kill people, people kill people. But is it fair to say that even with the stringent gun laws that California has, and, and, and California has some of the most progressive gun laws in the country, them and you look at them, New York, the District of Columbia, uh, but it, it's it's still the individual. But how do you go around saying, look, you know, could this have been prevented had he not had the ability to buy a a a weapon? And even the NRA saying, well, wait a minute, this guy meets even the California law. What are you going to do? Make it more stringent than that? Well, first of all, he had. Uh, I think the, the police actually went to the house and interviewed him. And if the police had only, I mean, and the parents called and said, you know, there's a problem here. Um, if I, I think if I were the lead policeman, I would have said, I would have, I would have asked to go to see his room because in the room were more guns and ammunition and 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 all sorts of things, which possibly would have, you know, would have been a red flag. But Denise, correct. Uh, but on, on the legal side, the question is whether or not they had probable cause to go in to go see his room. I mean, they went in because his parents called them and said, please right. go talk to my son, which, by the way, is strange in and of itself. I mean, no, they, no, cops do that all the time. I remember when I was a cop, we, we would get calls, especially on a college campus, hey, I haven't talked to my son in a month. I'm concerned for him. If they file that report, cops will go and do what they call a wellness check to make sure that they're alive or But dead. I don't think this was a wellness check you're talking about. This is, hey, I think there's something wrong mentally with my son. Would you go check on him? As a parent, my question is, why aren't you getting in your car and going over there and finding out what's going on? I mean, he's, you know, he's over the age of consent. He's over 18. But this is your son you're talking about. Why aren't you getting in the car? Why are you relying on the police? And that's what my fear is, that people are going to rely on the police when sometimes families have to address issues within themselves. Carl Tubin. We don't know what, what they, what, exactly what the parents said to the police, but it would seem to me that if a parent calls and says, 
there's something wrong with my son. Who knows, they might have said mental, they might have not said mental. But if they said mental, then it, I think it, it's, it's incumbent upon the police not only question them, but also do a little, go, go a little further. I mean, it, it, but we don't, yeah. We don't, we don't, we don't know a lot of the background. We're there's, speculating a lot here. Yeah, there, there's going to be a police investigation on just what, what information came in, mm -hmm. what the content of it was, and, and, and what the response was. Um, and beyond that, we can only speculate. We can also only speculate on what the parents said and what the parents' frame of, uh, state of mind was. The parents might be afraid of their kid. And and such as what the, happened in Sandy Hook. You know, on the on the one hand, it, it it's 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 great to say, gee, go check on your kid. We don't know if their kids were the, the the parents who I guess live in Los Angeles. We don't know if they were home when this happened. Again, this stuff will slowly come out. Um, and uh, what we do know is that the parents were fearful enough about what was going on that they called in the police. Most parents don't do that. Uh, the, you know, the wellness check is one thing, but when your kid is saying creepy, scary stuff or threatens to hurt others or himself in calling, that's, that's the real question, I think, that, that needs to be answered. What message was conveyed to the police? What information did they have? What did they do with it? Because um, they did interview him, and they came away saying, he seemed fine, um, and, and, uh, and, and maybe he did seem fine, and maybe... When you watch this, this kid who's now 22, and if he's been having mental issues since he's a little kid, he's learned to hide stuff. He went through, you know, the, uh, a, a, good, a good university in the California system. Um, he's driving his, his big-ass BMW around. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so he's, he looks decent. He's got a big fancy car, and he can't get a date. This guy's got some real challenges personality-wise. Um, they don't mean you throw him in jail, but, but and then you get a call from the parents. I don't know. It's just a horrendous, it's a horrendous tragedy uh, that's a reminder of how vulnerable it, we, any of us can be to the vagaries of, of mental illness, mental health, people who can do harm, whether they've got guns, knives, cars, uh, arson. I mean, yeah. it's it's. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, Alan Denise Crab Allen's got a point. I mean, you know, we we could create an overarching police state where the government reaches in and tries to protect all of us from all things. I could walk outside this door today on F Street and get hit by a bus. You know, it, it, it's just unfortunately in the free society that we have. But at the same time. You know, we've got obviously a, a mentally troubled young man who was literally given legal access to the tools that he used to create this horrific event. And Justin, I'm not arguing for a police state. I don't think there should be a oh, police state. Oh, no, no, I know. I, but but there I are some that are. But no, I, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I know how to shoot a gun, but I know how to shoot it because I was in the military. I mean, I, I do believe that there is a time and a place for a gun. And do I think a troubled young man needs to own a gun? No. But I think what should be happening is if you are applying to own a gun, then you should be asked the question, do you suffer from mental illness? Or have you, so, have, or you sought have, men, have you sought have you sought therapy yes. for any signs of mental condition? And that should be a trigger. And if you are saying yes to that, then there should be more 
examination to how you are purchasing a gun. But Carl, this, this goes into a question of privacy. I don't necessarily, if I'm seeing a therapist or I'm seeing a mental health professional, uh, you know, it doesn't mean I can't own a gun. It just means that, you know, hey, I, 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 I suffer, for, you know, I suffer a mental illness. But it's not necessarily a disqualification, but there are some that are calling that it should. But that's a very thin line right there. I mean, uh, if, you know, again, if the parents had said to the police, my child has mental problems and there's a background, uh, you know, they should have maybe gone a little further. At the same time, uh, um, if he walks into a store like evidently he did and starts picking up all these guns, uh, you know, and he's got a mental background, you know, does the background check have that? I don't know. Should the background check have that? That's a question. I guess for the courts, but the legislature. Yeah, very true. Mm-hmm. But Alan Moore, this also brings up the question. We're seeing it again, where a lot of these mass shootings. I mean, first of all, you have to be not mentally stable to commit a horrendous act like this. But there are now many, especially out in California and some nationwide, that are calling for an actual review of, hey, look, this 7-Eleven drive-through Taco Bell burrito mental health program that we have where you go in, you sit down, you say, oh, you know what, just sit down, think about it, reflect, and you're better. We don't put enough attention into mental health in this country. At least that's what a lot of people are saying after this tragedy. It seems that we're saying this after every tragedy. Where, where's the fine line where we say, okay, now we have to take a serious look at this? Well, let's not pretend that we, we don't take a serious look today at mental health. We spend and uh, billions and billions of dollars uh, on mental health. Uh, there's there, there, uh, Obamacare and other initiatives in Congress say that you have to treat mental uh, health the same way you treat uh, physical health in terms of insurance coverage. That doesn't mean that all mental health uh, coverage is equal, that people are going to participate, that they are going to seek out a doctor, that they're going to follow up on the therapies, they're going to take their medications if they, if they are prescribed, that they're going to get those prescriptions. The, the quality varies enormously, but, but uh, it, it, we're, I am not here to say we don't do uh, anything on mental health. We, we are expanding mental health rapidly, um, but, but I'm sure there are ways we could shore up what we do, um, but that is not, neither gun controls, greater gun controls, of which I think everybody in this, uh, around this table is, is supportive of some expansion, particularly background checks, nor an expanded mental health system is going to find all these crazy nutcases. Um, and, and, uh, and somehow prevent them. I mean, that's why in the, in the aftermath, there's no magic bullet. That we want to, we always want to say, "Gosh, if only we had done this, then that wouldn't have happened." Or then the other, the the the, the other argument is, "No, because if you had these tougher laws and this and that, he would have still done this and that. He was a whack job with the mental health system." Yeah, but California's got a pretty advanced mental health system. This kid's been getting mental health. Uh, treatment since he was eight years old. We don't know the details of all of that. We don't have any any ability to to denigrate the nature of the of the healthcare he got. Somehow, everything lined up in a way 
that he was angry and really angry and really angry at women and he went out to kill as many of them as he could and he would have killed a lot more uh, if 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 he had been if, allowed, if he had been allowed entry into one particular sorority house where that he was particularly angry at he would almost certainly have had many more victims I mean he I'm not saying, gee, aren't we lucky there were only six dead and there's still 13 who were, who, were, who were injured, a couple of them pretty seriously. I'm just saying, yeah, we have to, to chip away at what makes sense in terms of gun ownership. We have to chip away at what makes sense in terms of mental health care. And then we also have to maintain a little bit of humility over our inability to control everything at all times with everybody and that there's some really bad crap that's going to go down and sometimes crazy nutcases are going to kill people and that's a horrible tragedy. Call to well, even if we came up <clears throat> with some solutions and even if we if we had something introduced in the Senate, it wouldn't go through the House at this point and, and it's, it, you know, it's, that's a, unfortunately a fact of Washington at this time. But, but Denise Krupp, we've been doing this show three years. You've been a part of this show now for a year. I mean, we armchair, we armchair quarterback everything. And it's not just us. I mean, the entire media scheme has been armchair quarterbacking these subjects from whether it's the Boston Marathon bombing, whether it's Sandy Hook. There's a lot of armchair quarterbacking that goes on. But every time we do this, I mean, we did it after Gabby Gifford's tragic events. And every time we do this, every time we hear that, you know, the Congress comes together and say, you know what, we need to fix whether it's mental health or it's gun control, and it, it seems that Congress has a very short memory when it comes to subjects like this. Is it a matter of that they don't want to deal with it, or is it a matter of that we just can't deal with it? We can't be all protective of all hazards all the time. Yeah, I think it goes back to what Carl just said. You, you could move something theoretically in the Senate, but it's not going to move in the House. It, it's not on the agenda, and I can tell you, as a mother whose kid was in lockdown because of the Navy Yard shootings, to me, it's not something I'm going to forget. It's not something any parent's going to forget if you've been involved in this type of a situation. But the question is, will you be able to get 219 votes on the House side? Yes. And right now, you do not. The, the people who are proposing this type of legislation do not have 219 votes. Alan Moore, well, yeah, but yeah. suppose you have those votes. What is it that you're going to pass that would have prevented this tra tragedy? And I, I dare say, and even though I'm, I'm on board, I'm fine, I'm also realistic about, if, forget what's doable. We can, all, we can advocate what we think should happen, but let's not pretend that, that there's a law that we could have passed that people are talking about that ipso facto would have said, okay, gosh, if only we had passed that, then this, then this tragedy wouldn't have happened. We can change our laws and we can reduce the odds of some things, and that's what we're talking about. If we, make, if, we, if, we apply, if we order up more stringent background checks under more circumstances in the purchase of guns, I think there can be some, some positive benefit that we will never be able to measure very well because you can't ever prove the, you can, you can't ever prove the negative. But we will, we've still got hundreds of millions of guns out there. We've still got illicit ways to move guns around. And we've still got crazy people who are, who are, who are going to go nuts. Maybe we can reduce the rate at which those things happen. And we could look back and say, wow, we had gun deaths of such and such in this 
at this time and 10 years later, they fell some amount. That would be worth doing. That's really the main argument for toughening these laws. But that doesn't mean this particular tragedy uh, could have been stopped. We, there, there, are just, there are just too many ways for, for guns to get that, that are out there to get into the hands of people and for us to not be able to predict accurately the, 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 the mental health of some, of some of the weirdos who just completely snap and go berserk. Carl Tuvin? But if you don't do, if you do nothing, I haven't proposed doing nothing. No, he hasn't yeah. has proposed doing yeah. nothing. That's not my proposal. I I, but, but I'm just saying, let's not pretend that if mm. we do even mm. what we would around this table agree to, that suddenly all of that stuff will go away. No, no it's not all going to go away. But at least if you, try to, if you try to introduce something, if you try to put some ideas out there, something positive might happen. And that's, that's the important thing. Well, I, I mean, I... I I, gotta, I, I agree with Alan. I mean, we're not going to prevent all these tragedies from happening, but there are, there are many that say that, you know, the proliferation of firearms in this country are, is just out of control. There are some that, that say that we might not prevent all of them, but even with Sandy Hook, the Navy Yard, now what happened in, Ila, uh, in Isla Vista, uh, all of these, could we have prevented one of them that would have saved, you know, dozens of lives? And the other, the other thing is this was done differently than the other. I mean, he might have started out by stabbing his uh, roommate, but then he got into his car, and he ran over people and hurt people. Yep. And, well, that, uh, that's another question. So, you know, so we, you've had NRA supporters out in California saying, well, what are you going to do, regulate who's going to buy a car? Do you have mental background checks on buying a car? Do you do mental background checks every time you get a driver's license? There are there are several people that look at that saying, look, how far do we go into this this arena and constitutional versus public safety? It's, it's a really difficult, difficult situation. But, Denise, until we start addressing, at least bringing the argument to the forefront mm -hmm. and not just do it 10 days, 20 days after these tragic events, as long as it becomes part of the national discourse on a regular basis, is there a possibility that we might come to some consensus on this? I don't think we're going to come to a national consensus, but it would be interesting to learn if the states, on an individual basis, come to a consensus. You know, when you have what happened with Cray Beads here in Virginia, right. and you have other state-by-state -state incidents, will the governors of those states take action and say, hey, if the federal government's not going to act on this, what can I do within my own state to make sure that my own citizens are better protected? Carl Tuvin? The other, the other part, part of this, or now part of this, is that Bloomberg has a division of his thing, which is uh, looking at gun control and all these issues. It's going to be very interesting to see what their reaction is to this and yeah. what, what they want to do. Well, I mean, you, you not only have them, but you also have... Uh, Wonder if he wants in on this. No, 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 no. Already, already <laughs> talking about that. But we, uh, uh, but you know, it, it's funny. You know, you look at Bloomberg. You look at the major urban, you know, urban mayors. You know, you look at Bloomberg. You look at uh, uh, the mayor of Los Angeles. You look at the mayor of Chicago. You look at the mayor of Philadelphia. All, your large urban centers, even in a conservative area like the mayor of Miami, is calling for and is on board with Bloomberg. You know, this is the large center of our population in America, yet we have to fight with states that don't have 
the large urban areas and the blight and the violence on a daily basis, i.e. Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas, they don't see that type of urban violence on a daily basis and, and maybe it falls short. I think maybe if they did experience this, if they did live in a town where they see police cars blocking off roads because of a mass shooting like we had here in Washington a uh, year and a half ago with, uh, with the Navy Yard. It, it, you know, it, it just bugs me, even as a Republican, it bugs the heck out of me that we don't look at gun control, that the gun control argument has been a partisan fight. I'm looked at as a liberal, as a rhino, because I promote, I want to see sensible gun control. And I, I, I think this is not a partisan issue. This is an issue that everybody should look at. We still love you. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah, you, apparently you, you are the only one. Alan doesn't like me. Hell. Yeah, well, <laughs> but it's got nothing to do with guns. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate that. Here's a question. Can I, and I just sure. I go over but there actually, it looks like there is a question on the Department of Justice um, <coughs> form that you have to fill out. It's called the Firearms Transactional Record Part 1, column B number, insert number. And it it, there, there is a question here that says, have you ever been adjudicated mentally defective, which includes a determination by a court, board, commission, or other lawful authority that you are in danger to yourself or to others? So this is going to be really interesting in this case because if this... But that, you said the key words, though. The key words there is, have you been adjudicated? Well, and that's what I'm that's, saying. That's, have you been found by a court? Just because I see a mental professional, I could be mentally... No, 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 no. It says court, board, commissioner, other lawful authority. How are you defining lawful authority? And that is where the people whose children have been killed are going to go after the parents of the individual who did the shooting and say... Who did you talk to over the past couple of years, and has your son ever been considered? Well, adjudicate, the, the key word there is have you been adjudicated? Have you been found legally insane? No, 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 mentally defective. Now we're, I need to play by lawyer a lawful, on you. By, by a lawful, lawful authority. authority. Right. Uh, we a need therapist. a definition of law, law I don't authority. think a therapist is a lawful authority. No, it's not. It's I do not. not. That's, that's, or they would never get any clients. Exactly. Exactly. But we'll take a look at that. That's actually a very good subject for another show here. That, that's a really good idea. Thanks, thanks for that, Denise. Good catch. Uh, when we come back... Oh, go ahead, Alan. Well, I was going to say, and, and if you're filling that form out, and you say no, yep. and it's a lie, yep. which... Then you fall under federal perjury. You know, then, but he, you know, it's like, these, these guys have so much more coming down on them than lying on a, on a form. Like, most of them are dead. Right. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the the truly crazies. Um, Correct. I, I'm not saying you don't that, that you don't you, you remove the the question. I'm just saying that that I I, I think the delegation or lawful authorities is, is is a high bar, um, and, uh, and and people would lie but if they couldn't get their gun. Carl, last but, one, real quick. But if a court ordered him to be to see a psychiatrist under the court's then he'd have to check yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, when we come back, we're going to have our we're gonna have one of our special guests. We're going to have Dakota Wood from the Heritage Foundation. He's going to be here talking about the situation in the Ukraine and why we really need to be concerned about it and a chocolate king. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 Elm Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be 
America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Capital, Washington, D.C. Joining us now, he is a fellow with the Heritage Foundation. He is the former congressional candidate out of Oklahoma, former lieutenant colonel, U.S. Marine Corps. He is our friend, Dakota Wood. Dakota, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for here. they got the best tea in town. They do have the best tea in town, absolutely. Hey, Dakota, um, we're, we want to ask you about what's going on in, in the Ukraine. Obviously, uh, we've seen what's happened in the Crimea. Uh, we saw the siege at Sarevostov. We've uh, seen what's been happening in the, in the eastern regions now. Uh, they've also gone through elections out in the Ukraine. Let's talk about what happened over the past seven days in Crimea. Uh, the uh, president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, pretty much drew back and recalled most of his troop forces off of the border with the Ukraine and out of Crimea. Uh, do you have any sense as to his reasoning? Why the sudden change? Well, it's once you won the war, you don't need to continue occupying. I mean, you know, so, I mean, some would say America hasn't done a good job at that. So you know, he has he has Crimea, right? It's been annexed, and, and it's, so he doesn't need to, to continue to occupy that. And the and, people support and, that. And the people, uh, almost almost exclusively yeah. ethnic Russians, yeah. so they support it in that area. But that brings up the question whether a subset of population within a country sure. can, of their own volition, decide to separate from that country and join someplace else. According to the Ukrainian constitution, what they did in Crimea was illegal. 
Okay, the only reason it continues to stand is because there's nobody to contest it. You know, and there's really, not really a government in Kiev yeah, that I mean, can really enforce it. Yeah, so, you know, the, the government in Kiev has been problematic. And, uh, and the reason, uh, presumably or, or reportedly, Putin has drawn his forces back from uh, that border area of eastern Ukraine is that he has been able to foment now domestic opposition. So you have Russian separatists, who uh, ethnically Russian, who live in eastern Ukraine, and they are doing what Putin would want to be done anyway. So when you have your strategic objectives being met, there's no reason to keep your conventional forces engaged. And what this does is it lowers uh, any of these individual actions or keeps it below a threshold that would invite a conventional response from the West, whether that's Europe or the U.S. Or but Dakota, you know, Very we, well, Dakota, well, I mean, this is obviously a victory for Vladimir Putin. Absolutely. It, it puts egg on the face of the Western nations, right. who pretty much did everything but lock Ukraine in a lockbox, or lock the Russians into a lockbox. The Russians probably said, look, we did what we wanted to do. Was this, how big of a failure was this? for the administration on a foreign policy level? Well, I think it's several administrations, not only this one here in the U.S., but also the administrations in Germany, and France, and England, you know, our NATO allies. It really goes to show what years and years of underinvestment in their own national defense and national security capabilities has been. You know, NATO has a target of 2% of GDP. Was this a failure on investing in national security and national defense? Yes. Why? Okay, because these things don't just spring out of nowhere. It's not, well, what can we do right now or what should we have done yesterday? This is the culmination or the consequence of many years. You know, it's kind of like the erosion of a house when termites get in it. You know, no single day is a catastrophic day, etc. But over time, it accumulates and you get to a point where the structure is just untenable. And so what we have here is we have a Europe that is completely self-absorbed, uh, committed to these uh, socialist states where uh, the people are very dependent on the goods and services provided by the government in order to sustain that the governments then have underinvested in things like military capabilities so that when a crisis does happen, they don't have the wherewithal to engage or to present this strong united front. Secondly, uh, Europe has not seen to its own energy requirements through all sorts of regulations that have prevented drilling both in, onshore and offshore, whether you pursue nuclear power, all these other things. So they're critically dependent on natural gas and other energy supplies that come out of Russia. So advantage two goes to Russia. Three, this administration here in the U.S. just is, is adamantly opposed to getting entrenched in yet another conflict outside of the borders. It has a domestic policy agenda that it wants to continue. And, uh, you know, the Barack Obama administration has done everything it could to get out of Iraq. It's now trying to get out of Afghanistan. It did not want to get, get engaged in Syria. It wanted to lead from behind in Libya. Um, it doesn't want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with China and the South China Sea and East China Sea. So the last thing it wants to do is get involved in some kind of a conflict in Eastern Europe. But at the same time, the domino effect that we used to talk about in Cold War uh, right. terms, the domino effect seems to be happening in the, Ukraine, in the Eastern regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. Donetsk has claimed independence. Luhansk has claimed independence. Because it has caused... It has caused dozens and dozens of deaths right. in these regions, 
is, is this the domino effect that we feared from yes, the Cold War? It, it absolutely is, because when, when the controlling influences are removed, like taking the uh, lid off of a pressure cooker or something else that keeps things in check, you know, if there, was, if, there, if there was a good thing in the Cold War, it's that you had these two dominant competing powers who were kind of keeping a lid on all these smaller things that might have been going on around the world. You know, the big guy would come in, say, knock it off, the various insurgent groups and little factions and those kinds of things would kind of get back in their box. With U.S. retrenching from the world and not exercising the power and influence that we did previously, it provides exploitive opportunity for all of these little ethnic groups to try to do what they want. Is this so, a new isolationism that we're beginning? Um, I would say it's not an isolationism. It's a disinterest in wanting to remain engaged. So America wants to remain engaged in the world when it comes to trade, when it comes to visiting places, exporting our films and movies, importing pasta from Italy. I mean, you, you want to be part of this world, but that's different than wanting to remain and to pay the cost of remaining engaged as a power, as a military power. And, and I think what has been lost is, that, is an understanding that military power, even unused, I mean, you don't have to be shooting somebody, right? But strong military posture underwrites diplomacy. It underwrites the influence when you go to trade negotiations. Who is the big guy on the block, and where do you align yourself with? Denise Crabb. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you brought up a couple of points. First, this isn't something that Barack Obama created. I mean, when no, you I said it's years. I it, mean, it's it, been it, years. It, it years. And I think we need to talk about that here in the United States. You know, after World War II, we deliberately put U.S. bases. U.S. bases in Germany. We had them in Spain. We had them. We still have them in Turkey. We have them in England, in Iceland, Italy, Italy, everywhere. And we put them there, and we put our forces there, and we told the Europeans, if the Soviets go through the Folda Gap, we'll be there. Okay. So if I was a European and I say, well, I've got a bunch of Americans here, I don't need to fund my own military service. So we kind of watched. Well, they didn't fund. And by the way, the lack of funding hasn't just been for the past 20 years. This goes back a long time. So that has allowed the Europeans to put the money in other places. And so when we started pulling back in the late 90s, and we started you know, retrenching even more in the past five years, they woke up and went, holy, we've got a problem. And now we're telling but, them... But they didn't do anything. Exactly. So I, this is a point. I mean, the argument is, and it's a good argument, that, that you stop enabling people. You force people to grow up and to provide for their own defense, like South Korea, like Japan... Uh, like our European you know, friends and allies, etc. And so if you pull back, they have to step into that vacuum. But, but history has shown that they don't do that because there isn't a clear and present danger on any one given day of the week. And I can always push off down the road you know, these kinds of investments don't show an immediate benefit. Well, we've talked about, Dakota, we, we've talked about, for example, let's, let's take Crimea, for example. You know, we, there are rumblings coming out of Washington that say that Putin tried to reach out to the Obama administration and said, look, Crimea and the warm water port at Sevastopol is, in fact, a strategic resource for our national security. We have to have that deep water port. We made a legal agreement with the government in Ukraine. We're just protecting our warm water fleet. 
Right. But, it, but, but, we would have done the same thing. Yeah, but that's a false argument. Why is that a false argument? Because there are other treaties that govern the passage of capital warships from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean. Law of the sea. So whether or not, it wasn't law of the sea, it's... Um, I no, can't, but law of the sea yeah. to Trump because of uh, freedom of passage. Well, no. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it has to do with tonnage and the type of warships that go back and forth on that. So what I'm saying is, is that is that none of these issues are simple, okay? So you had the previous government in Ukraine um, that was very ham-handed in, you know, in uh, uh, making illegal or, or taking Russia off as an official language and implementing policies that were going to estrange the ethnic Russians who were in Ukraine. They, they set themselves up for a situation that was expertly exploited by Putin. Right? So, again, if Putin was really this law-abiding guy and was concerned about issues of sovereignty and all that stuff, he wouldn't have condoned anything that occurred in Crimea because what, what happened in Crimea was illegal according to the Ukrainian but isn't, Constitution. But isn't, isn't there a certain hypocrisy? We would have done the same thing if we had had a base in a contested region. You don't think that no, we would not have so. gone in? Absolutely. We, oh, really? We, 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 we left every, every time somebody wanted to kick us out. We left the Philippines. We draw down in South Korea. Well, we can go back on, to the 1700s on. if you want, but I'm talking the real world today. Oh, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Everybody, hold on, hold on, hold on. Carl Thuban, the next question is to you. First of all, wasn't there a treaty signed by Russia, the United States, and Britain about the Ukraine, that they would, uh, the territorial um, integrity. integrity of the Ukraine would be there. And, and Putin kind of went over that. He didn't just kind of, he did. He did. I mean, all, right, all, the, all of these uh, well-trained, organized, command and control right. forces that come in without any kind of badges, you know, or insignia or something like that, right, those were all right. Russian forces that came and, in. And the, well, other, the, other point, the other point is, is that we now have reestablished uh, 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 Air Force in the Philippines. It was there was something signed a, a few weeks ago that we would that has enabled additional training and exercises and access to airfields, but it does not include the permanent basing of U.S. forces back okay. in the Philippines. Right. right, Alan Moore. Yeah, I was simply going to re was was remembering that that when they when the Soviet Union broke up and there was a great interest on, in the West, uh, by us in particular, in get, getting control of nuclear weapons. There, the, that was a key part of the deal with Ukraine. Right. U Ukraine had a lot of nukes. They, there, there were certainly plenty of people in Ukraine who thought having some nukes can be a good thing because it gives us some clout. On the other hand, uh, it was a little scary to have uh, all this stuff scattered around their country that they couldn't protect very well. They they basically made a deal. We'll give you back the nukes to Russia. To Russia, and then a lot of that, a lot of the material was was what came to the West and was was disassembled and so on. They gave up their nukes. Suddenly, they're no longer a nuclear power. They're pretty vulnerable. But in in giving up their nukes. They got some other representations that supposedly everybody bought in on, including Russia pre-Putin. He comes in and he sees all these ethnic Russians. That everything that happened in Kiev, the people, the, the the government trying to decide whether to go to Europe or move towards Russia, mm -hmm. the killings in the street, and then the president abandoning the country, which he did not have to do, and no one was really thinking about or anticipating until everything sort of collapsed. At that point, you have a vacuum of this 
horrible economy and all this financial need, and you got Putin over there saying, ah, ah, my moment. Mm -hmm. And he can make some moves, and there's nobody who's in a position, certainly not the Ukrainian military, not us. We don't have a presence or the national interest to sort of all of a sudden send masses of troops. The Europeans aren't going to do it. They don't want to make Putin mad because they're energy dependent on uh, on Russia. So for Putin, this was an easy one. He had very little uh, military pushback. The, the politics were such that he made a, a very quick calculation. He thought, yeah, this will make some people mad. So what? I can deal with that. I'm it looks like if, if what, hap what happens in Crimea can happen in the east of Ukraine, maybe I can get a rim of ethnic Russians in some of these other countries who will not reestablish re the, the former Soviet Union, but give me a, a, a buffer state remind, around Russia and, remind, and the West and remind everybody that they can't just uh, push us around. And there's, there's, a, there's not a lot of pushback from the West. Dakota? Well, I, I guess that's my point, is that we don't have options because of the series of decisions over years and years, you find yourself completely ill-positioned right. and, and no political willingness. So why doesn't Angela Merkel in Germany want to sanction uh, strong sanctions against Russia? It's because they have their own domestic uh, political situation, they have their own domestic economic problems that they're having to deal with. Why do they have those problems? Because of domestic policies that have been growing over the decades. So my point being that policies you enact today, if you allow them to run, will have consequences years down the road. But it's the dangers of years down the road that make a very hard argument to make with your population because the near-term interests will always crowd out the long-term interests. One of the, one of the great ironies right now, as I see it, is that, that that people in, around Europe, two things are happening. One, they're angry when the U.S. is adventuresome. They were angry at decisions we made. I mean, they were certainly not unified in decisions we made in Iraq and Afghanistan. They, were, they, they, they supported us more on Afghanistan than on Iraq, but without enthusiasm in either case. We've now pulled back. We're, on our, we're, we're, we're pulling back out of Afghanistan. Iraq is a mess. And... And although they were angry at us for our so-called uh, uh, adventurous nature, now they're angry because we won't stand up and push back on Putin. And we just have to accept the fact that the Europeans are going to be distressed with us almost no matter what we do. Furthermore, there's some interesting elections that have occurred just in the last couple of weeks, including a British election last this, this last week on membership in the European Parliament, where the uh, the Liberal Democrats have, who used to have ten seats, are down to one seat, and the uh, the UK Independence Party is on the ascendancy. The Tories, <laughs> the, the the Conservatives and the Labour parties are now second and third behind this UKIP. upstart UKIP party. <clears throat> Which is basically British Tea Party. Well, it, 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 and you it, know, the, the rise of the far right in France right. as well. You see hyper-nationalism in Germany. Yeah, you right. see it everywhere. Well, let me ask so you, so, so I think, I think the, this point, though, is that the United States should act in its own self-interest. Yep. 
And so whether or not the Europeans have decided to invest as they should have years ago, or whether or not Japan does, or anybody else on the planet, we have to decide if they don't, do we win or lose in the long run? So does it cost us to maintain a strong presence? Yes, it does. I would argue that we lose far more if we don't make those insurance investments uh, from year to year to year. All right, let's talk about the let's talk about the Ukrainian election that just ended over the weekend. Uh, according to CNN and BBC, all apparent results look like uh, chocolate billionaire Petro Poroshenko, Poroshenko is going to be the new president of the Ukraine. Does that give us, as the United States, some sort of semblance of uh, of happiness? Or, I mean, are we glad for this? Well, there's somebody we can work with. It was a clear win. It seems to have been 56% largely... 56% of the vote? Yeah, the whole bit. So it, it's somebody that you can deal with, uh, you know, actually elected. It's a parliament that you can deal with. I mean, there's a power structure in place that Europe and the U.S. can work Could with. Could Poroshenko them. possibly ease the tension in the eastern part, or is that too far gone? I, I, I personally think it's too far gone. I think they're headed for civil war. I think that the, uh, the, the street conflicts, there's a few folks that I track who, um, who uh, report on this on a daily basis. We have family and friends in the area, and they're saying that reports on the street are shops are being shuttered, street battles are underway, you have a flood of people from you know their homeland to friends and relatives in other parts of the country, and um, uh, Putin and uh, in Moscow has told Poroshenko and his guys in Kiev that, that they need to pull back their military forces and don't take aggressive, you know, military kinds of action in eastern Ukraine. Is so, Poroshenko somebody that both Moscow and Washington can work with? Somebody I believe that that Washington can work with. That, that if Poroshenko and his government are adamant about reconstituting a whole sovereign Ukraine, that's not going to sit well with Moscow. Denise Crap. In two weeks, world leaders are going to be uh, converging onto uh, Normandy. It's the 70th anniversary of, of D-Day. Do you expect Putin to be there? And if so, what type of conversations do you think are going to happen? Yeah, I, I, to have, I have no idea. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball, but, uh, but I don't know if he would show up. He might do it just to stick his thumb in the eyes of the West. That you see all that I've just done, I had my Olympics, I've got my Crimea moment, I have instability that I helped foment in eastern Ukraine, the Baltics are now very concerned, the Black Sea is my back, you know, my, my backyard again. So this could be yet an extension of a victory lap, and he shows up and he would tout the 20 million Russians or so that were lost you know, in the great war that they had uh, there uh, you know, against Nazism, and he could claim equal credit. Uh, for helping to win World War II and putting, uh, you know, Nazi Germany back in the spot. Carl Tuvin. What about the, what about the situation where, where each time uh, <clears throat> we've gone through, through this before, where we kind of downgrade our military. Right. You had World War I. There was a whole thing on World War I last night on the History Channel where they had, Germans had 4 million troops. We had 100,000. And, and then between... Then in the, in the Second World War, we decreased, and we had the same, the same situation at that point. And, and in Korea, as I remember it, we also were in a deficit of, of soldiers right. uh, that, that fight. So if we go through this again... Yeah, at the end of every major conflict in the 20th century, right. everyone, right. we have decreased spending on defense by a third. 
roughly, in rough numbers. Most of the time, I think uh, in all previous occurrences, that was, that was probably um, uh, reasonable, right? Because you had a new normal. There was a new peace that existed because the large conventional actors had been defeated. But what happened post 9-11, though, is that you know, we ramped up again in spending and manpower costs and all those things, and now that the wars in Iraq and almost Afghanistan are over, right, we want to go back to the way things were before. What's not being accounted for in that, though, is that the world has not gone back to a peaceful state. Exactly. So you have very aggressive China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, problems in Syria, North <clears throat> Africa, all these things. It's a very dynamic, dangerous, high-risk place. Dakota, last question before we let you go. Uh, we've always heard in the past decade the superpowers tend to consist of the U.S. and China. It's almost as if Russia had been relegated to a third chair. When we do that, are we looking at a situation where um, are we looking at a situation where, in fact, we have a um, a new superpower in Russia? Has Putin regained superpower status? I think it's one of these uh, kind of false blips, right? That there are structural flaws in both Russia and China. You know how you can continue to spend on your credit card and give the illusion of wealth. But meanwhile, in the background, you're bankrupting yourself, or your house is in turmoil, or you can't meet obligations, but you keep this facade of being super successful. So, for instance, in China, huge environmental problems, huge public health problems, desertification of their lands. Arable land is, is being eroded by encroachments of deserts and all that stuff. Most of their debt is off book. It's been crony capitalism. Uh, the balance sheets are completely in the red. They've got huge gluts in the uh, building. In Russia, huge public health problems, rampant alcoholism, an aging population, on and on and on. So I think these are surges and America to show power. Right. Yeah. Right. Surges <laughs> to show power, but our basis, yeah. though, is healthier than anybody yeah. else. Well, we, we've, uh, we've got to let you go. Dakota Wood from Heritage, we really appreciate coming Thank on. You. Thanks for coming on. We'll always have you on. Dakota. Wonderful. We love you, man. Hey, when we when we come back, uh, we've got Carl Blake from the uh, Paralyzed Veterans of America. <laughs> He's going to talk about the little fight that we've got with a non-veteran, Senator Burr, Republican of North Carolina, claiming, hey, are the veteran services organizations doing what they're saying they're supposed to do? We're going to talk to Carl when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody, mild, medium, strong, heavy. 
However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Live on Blog Talk Radio, this is Back Room Politics. Hey, joining us now is Carl Blake. He is the Director of Government Affairs for the Paralyzed Veterans of America. Carl, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Hey, Carl, uh, let's, let's get down to it. Uh, in, 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 a, in a shocking wave over the weekend, a Republican senator out of North Carolina, Senator Byrd, decided to pick a fight with Veteran Services Organization and named you guys by, by market value and came out and said that you guys weren't exactly serving the veterans community. I mean, that's got to offend you, and that's got to send you guys into a tizzy. Uh, clearly so. Um, if, you're, if you want to know what our response is, if you haven't seen it, you can go to our website, uh, org. Um, I mean, really, our response is sort of is twofold. One, just sort of the, the the fact that on a you know Memorial Day weekend, when our organization and our members, you know, are really reflecting on what the purpose of Memorial Day is, that was a sort of a surprise jab at our organizations as seemingly not being, you know, true advocates for veterans, which you know, truthfully, is just nonsense. Um, you know, I, I like to tell people that I feel like, for the most part, nobody knows how to be a better advocate for veterans than veterans. Um, and, you know, Senator Burr sort of maligned um, a group of us that were involved in a hearing before the Senate VA committee uh, back on May the 15th. And as it turns out, uh, every person that testified on that panel that day uh, is a veteran, uh, is a longtime member of each of our organizations. And I feel pretty confidently I've been advocates for veterans for a long time. You know, the other aspect of this is is that this, you know, I guess some some feigned outrage at our disinterest in, interest in 
addressing the problem the VA is facing, which is uh, it's certainly not true. We're as engaged as anyone. Um, and yet, you know, unfortunately, Senator Burr painted it, you know, in such a fashion as to suggest we're out of touch. Yet, given the opportunity to engage with us at that very hearing, uh, the senator didn't take any actions whatsoever. He didn't. Uh, he wasn't there for most all of our testimony, um, and he didn't ask us any questions, which is disappointing because you know, we're more than happy with, to engage with Senator Burr or any other member of the Senate or House uh, to discuss what we know are the problems and different ways to, to resolve it. Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the Fuhrer over Secretary Shinseki has kind of boiled to a head, and you know, clearly Senator Burr disagrees with the vast majority of the organizations who have taken one stance that opposes his, and he decided to voice that grievance in the manner that he did, and that's unfortunate. Uh, Carl, you know, when we look at the comment in this open letter that Senator Burr put out saying that uh, the Paralyzed Veterans of America, as well as other veterans service and veterans benefit organizations, he says, quote, more interested in defending the status quo within VA, protecting their relationships within the agency, and securing their access to the secretary and his inner circle. Uh, it has been a long-known fact that organizations such as the PVA, the Vietnam Veterans of, of, of America, the foreign—I'm uh, sorry—the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars of VFW and the American Legion—all of you all have been lost up in saying and have been critical of the current crisis there, but not necessarily saying that Secretary Shinseki is, in fact, this is a long-term effect, not just on one person. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty accurate. You know, the point is we're, we're not. You know, we didn't defend the Secretary's position because we're interested in the status quo. You know, I would question what good really would come from firing the leadership in this crisis. I, I know that that's what happens in a lot of instances, both in the military world and in the, you know, the private sector, but I'm not sure that any good in this circumstance would come from that. Um, you know, we, if the Senator had actually listened to our testimony uh, you know, and, and probably I assume he read our written statements, uh, you know, who knows. You know, if he had, in, had looked at that information we had provided, you would see that, uh, you know, we offered more than one solution to some of these problems. In fact, uh, with a couple of his colleagues on the committee, we had some very engaging, open discussions about, you know, really what the future holds for VA. You know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, broader contracting of care and, or, or, or building capacity within the VA, and we're more than happy to have those discussions. Um, but, you know, and, it, and I think we're in a situation where, you know, everybody should be able to offer suggestions without concern about whether somebody disagrees with our position and wants to take us to task for it. But clearly Senator Burke took exception, it seems, primarily to our position on the secretary, um, you know, I don't know about the rest, but, but clearly we offered some ideas that were basically ignored. Carl, when, when you look at the current situation at, at, the, at the VA, I mean, obviously you've got several veterans here around the table. Uh, this is obviously something that gives us great pause. Uh, and then we look at the Senate voting down the Comprehensive Veterans Health Benefits uh, Restoration Act of 2014, Senate Bill 1982, it, it, it almost seems that there's a, an inherent politicalization of veterans' issues versus the stance that the veterans' benefits organizations, such as your own, have come out and said, look, it's not politicizing the veterans. This is about getting veterans the care they're due. 
Yeah, you know, if I have a, if, if there's something that disappoints me most in my time in Washington, and I've been uh, with PVA for about 13 years now, it's that when you know when I first started working for PVA or Paralyzed Veterans of America, you know, I, I felt like veterans were still sort of a sacred cow. You know, everybody not only sort of talked about bipartisanship in terms of veterans issues, but everybody pretty much walked the walk. But now. You know, the political environment is so toxic, and this is not a Republican or a Democratic thing. This is an everything uh, political environment where the well is poisoned on at every turn, and now even veterans' issues are a political football. And, you know, unfortunately, when you get into that scenario, you know, substantive policy either never gets discussed or, or never even gets introduced in the first place. And, you know, and to ask 1982, you know, the veterans' organizations all – for the most part, came out in support of the of the legislation because there are a lot of provisions of that legislation that are important to all of our organizations. Um, we also recognize that there's some politics involved in the the activity around that legislation, and we'd like to see you know, some of that worked out so that this legislation could be moved forward. You know, there there's clearly um, uh, concerns with some of the members of the Senate, and uh, you know, we'd like to see. Uh, maybe working with those folks who have concerns to address some of those, and, and let's get this legislation done. Yeah, Carl, you know, uh, PVA has been very, very active, uh, has been very active in, in looking at veterans' benefits, but when you look at the Senate bill and you look at the $21 billion, a lot of the issues that are coming out in that bill, it talks about veterans' education programs, it talks about funding uh uh, programs that deal with uh, sexual trauma while in the military. That seems to be an all-encompassing bill. Does it surprise you that a majority of Republicans voted against that bill, especially Republicans that have largely made veterans' benefits part of their campaigning? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, most of the provisions in and of themselves, I, you know, I feel like have some bipartisan support. Um, you know, much like any other piece of legislation, some of them uh, on, on the Hill nowadays, sometimes it gets caught up in the mechanics of, you know, and, th and in the case of 1982, uh, probably the, the, the biggest arguing point was over how do you pay uh, pay for these bills, this bill and, and the many benefits that would be uh, put into place by the legislation. And, you know, from the Veteran Service Organization perspective, our view is if these, if these issues are our priority, you figure out how to pay for them. Um, as it turns out, you know, the, the way that the, the uh, Senator Sanders and the folks that were championing the bill, uh, you know, wasn't to the liking of the Republicans. I think that that's probably the biggest sticking point. Uh, there's clearly some other uh, lesser issues that uh, that uh, turn people off to the legislation. You know, I, at the end of the day, they need to get it done. Um, there, there's if, if veterans' issues are truly a priority, uh, you, there's no cost you can affix to it where it's a concern. Um, and like, like with the case of, of what's going on right now with VHA, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and suggest that they should throw more money at the problem. There's been a lot talked about in the last week or two about that issue. But certainly the resources that go to those programs are part of the conversation. And you know, we're more than willing to have that conversation. Denise Kraft. I have to say, 
I was very surprised by Senator Burr. I mean, he, he comes from a state with the 82nd at Fort Bragg. He has Pope. He has Camp Lejeune. I mean, he has a huge military, not only active, but retiree population. And for him to come out against a veteran service organization is just nutty. I, I don't understand why he would do that. And I also understand why he's not doing more and why Kay Hagan isn't doing more to help veterans. I mean, instead of saying you're not doing enough, Senator, go in and look at that VA that happens to be right in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and look at the problems that have existed there for years. Go in and look at the other VA facilities at, in, in and around North Carolina. They've had problems. They, people have known about it. You can't express shock that you didn't know about it. You knew about it. Yeah, and, and Carl, Vinny Spring, oh, go ahead, Carl, please. So I was just going to say, you know, and I wouldn't ever suggest that I'd be so naive as to think that there are problems. You know, I, I happen to be a user of the VA. Uh, PVA's members are, are the highest percentage users of, vet, of veterans of the system because of the unique needs of veterans with spinal cord injury. So, you know, there, there are specialized services in place in VA that are specifically for our members. And so we, we really understand the importance of the VA healthcare system, but we're not so naive as to think that these problems haven't existed for a long time. You know, we've, we've been talking about challenges for access for a very long time, and we've known about it, and, you know, and this is not a, this, is, this predates this administration, it predates the previous administration. It just, you know, these are long, the VA is challenged with a tremendous mission, and there are millions of veterans who currently take advantage of that of, of the services provided uh, to the tune of over six and a half million last year who use the VA healthcare system, um, and so you know there, there, there's a serious commitment that has to be made on the resource side. You know we voiced complaints for a long time about the capacity within the system. That's having adequate staffing for physicians, nurses, therapists, and what have you. Um, and until we get to a point where we're satisfied that they can start really meeting demands, I mean, we're going to, this, this problem is not just going to go away. Alan Moore. Yeah, so, Carl, this is Alan Moore. First of all, I, I, when, you, when you first started speaking, you said that you don't think that, that, that anybody, uh, that, that, that veterans are the best advocates for the needs of veterans, and, and I'm certainly not going to debate that, but I'll bet you that uh, you've got a lot of loved ones and family members who would say that they can give you a run for your money on being uh, the best advocates, uh, because, and I know you weren't, I, I know you weren't in any way suggesting that they are not your partners all the way down. I'm just reflecting on how how important uh, uh, family members are because they have a different insight and view of of everything that happens to you guys. But what, and I, but I want to also thank you for not just bashing on uh, on Senator Burr and, and really talking about the issues and the problems, Burr. He's, a, he's actually a pretty smart guy and a pretty good guy. I don't know what he was thinking in this particular case. He bit off more than he could chew. I think he thought, hey, I maybe get a freebie here and score some points with some of the veterans groups by saying, let's get rid of Shinseki. But by, but by blaming you guys for not taking on that position, uh, I think he'd probably like to have a do-over on this one. It's, just, it's, it's uncharacteristic of him. But I, I want to thank you for sticking with the issues of the VA, what it does, the challenges ahead for even acknowledging that, that, that some of the problems that, that, that some of the Republicans have, have really do have to do with who's going to pay for this stuff. It's the problem that a lot of people have with 
everything government is trying to do because there is no government program that doesn't have an enormous amount of support and, uh, and the challenge is always how do we balance uh, all of the needs we have, all the legitimate uh, claims on, uh, on, a, on, a, on, on treasure that's limited. Uh, and I appreciate your, your staying with that. Thank you. Carl? Well, and I, I'd say this, you know, I've always felt like we've had a reasonably good relationship with Senator Burr. I, to say that we were all caught off guard would be an understatement because you know, we, we've always certainly had some serious disagreements over the years. Um, and the Secretary Shinseki issue is certainly, you know, no exception. So it was, you know, everybody was caught off guard. And then, of course, of course you're going to touch a nerve with any veteran service organization when you level that sort of, I hate to call it an accusation, but, you know, when you level the criticism that he did in the yep. fashion that he did on what is probably to the veteran organizations the most important, I hate to even say holiday, but on the most important day of the year for our membership. And so, you know, I, I don't know. You know, it's unfortunate. I, I, again, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and there are a lot of challenges. You know, I, I'll, I'll even admit in the hearing from May 15th, you know, the, the thing that disappoints me about Senator Burr's comments is we, we I felt like we gave the indication that we're willing to work with them through multiple angles at the solution to this because there's not a one solution to this. You know, some people want to say the solution is privatized care or contract care. Some people want to say more money. Some people want to say more capacity. Uh, you know, any number of issues. And, you know, from my perspective and from Paralyzed Veterans' perspective, it's going to take all of those things sort of combining together to fix this problem. Carl Tubin. Uh, Carl, it's good to have you on the show. Um, Rick, Rick Weidman has always said uh, that, or said recently, that what, what is really needed is more docs and more support staff at the VA to, to uh, take care of the people who are coming in. Um, um, and, and also, I know you as, as one who, who sits with the secretary uh, every month, but a lot of these things have been brought up to the secretary over the past five years. And uh, uh, it's always been the feeling that his, the staff around him hasn't been as honest with him as they should have been in things that were going on beneath them. Yeah, I won't say for certain whether I think they're being honest with him or not, but one of the glaring things that came out of the Senate VA committee hearing was the number of times where it was clear or it seemed clear from my perspective that the Secretary himself and the former Undersecretary for Health, Dr. Petzl, didn't seem to be on the same page on some pretty significant questions. And that always is a, reflects poorly on both the Secretary and his support staff. You know, to your point about physicians and nurses, you know, PVA is in a unique position where for more than 30 years we've had an agreement with the VA where we monitor the spinal cord injury system of care. And every year we visit all of the STI centers, spinal cord injury centers in the system. And as part of that, we survey, uh, you know, the capacity of those, of those locations. So we can tell you down to the person where they are short, doctors, nurses, therapists, social workers. And it, it's clear even in just the STI system. And the STI system is not a, it's just a single snapshot. 
So if we can identify in that that there are obvious deficiencies in the staffing spectrum, we can only imagine what the larger VA is like. And the SDI system is really, it gets a lot of attention, and you know, on many levels it's really one of the crown jewels of the VA because it's a system that was stood up from scratch within the VA to serve a particularly significant need uh, among a, a particularly unique population of veterans. And it really is. It's an exception to the country because there is not comparable service out there. And that's true of, of SCI. It's true of amputee care for veterans, trauma TBI. So, you know, there are clearly and without question some serious staff challenges in BHA. Well, you know, Carl, we, we hear a lot of Republicans talking about the success in TRICARE and that TRICARE might be a model that some people should look at. We also hear a lot of the veterans and a lot of the service members that say, look, TRICARE is not the solution. We've got a lot of issues that deal with TRICARE. Is, is there merit to looking at a semi-privatized TRICARE system versus the current VA medical benefit system? Well, I would suggest first that if you polled enough people that are taking advantage of TRICARE, you might not find universal love uh, for what TRICARE provides. Uh, you know, the, the, the unique thing about the VA is it was it stood up for a, a special mission, which is to take care of veterans and their needs. And by and large, the private health care system is not designed to meet their needs. You know, what's unique about VA is it's a holistic approach that with comprehensive care that is for the life of the veteran. You know, for the most part, private health care systems are not constructed to be a, a lifelong process and relationship you know, with their patients. That's not to say that patients don't have, you know, lifelong relationships with their small-town doctors and things like that, but it's not the same situation. The danger to, uh, you know, partial privatization or whatever you may suggest is, and I go back to the SDI system, on all those other specialized services like amputee care, polytrauma, uh, certain aspects of of mental health, um, amputee care, blinded care, Many of those services do not really exist in the capacity that would be necessary um, in the private system. And what people fail to understand a lot of times is, while it may seem simple to say, well, we're not going to impact those, we're just going to privatize for primary care or maybe basic specialty care like audiology or orthopedics or something like that. All those specialized systems rely upon all those other basic care services and basic specialty care, those are like the bedrocks of the true specialized services. And if you start whittling those away, you diminish the basic care that all those spinal cord injured veterans or veterans with polytrauma and TBI also rely on. And so you place their health at risk. Um, Carl, you know, we've heard a lot over the weekend about PVA and and because of this, uh, if you want to call it, squabble or row between the veteran services organizations and, and Senator Burris. Can you take a couple minutes and tell us the, 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 the large-scale mission that PVA undertakes to supporting uh, veterans with spinal cord or traumatic back injuries? Well, I, you know, our organization has been in existence for 68 years. You know, we're, we're ultimately advocates for the VA because we recognize that that system is the system designed to serve our members. You know, we're actually unique in the veteran service organization community because, you know, we have your sort of your, your atypical services that a lot of major VSOs have, like 
Uh, you know, we have a veterans benefits department, which is really, that's the bread and butter of most any major veteran service organization is the service department that provides claims assistance, maybe provides some type of, uh, you know, like patient advocate services, things like that. You know, we have a government relations program, which is what I'm the director of, pretty common in the major organizations. What sets us apart from many of our counterparts in our, in our, in our sphere is we have a, a medical services department that is in the medical centers tracking what's going on, reporting on it, constantly engaging with the VA at the direct level to make sure the services are there and provided the way they're supposed to be. We have a, uh, in our organization, we have an architecture department that not only works with VA on accessibility, it's involved in the, in the regular world for disability access. You know, our, our organization is particularly unique because our members are, have two aspects to them. They're veterans, first and foremost, but they're people with disabilities. So a lot of our mission is targeted at supporting those individuals as people with disabilities. Under my department, we have an, a national advocacy program that deals with everything in the disability civil rights community that you can imagine, from air carrier access to transportation to the ADA. Um, we also have a research department that funds research, ultimately with the goal of helping support find a cure, finding a cure for, for SDI and D. So we're, we're a multifaceted organization that, that that supports a lot of programs that are ultimately you know aimed at you know improving the the life and the quality of life and the independence of our members now, and maybe ultimately one day finding a cure for, for paralysis or other spinal cord dysfunction. Carl, how can our listeners help support PVA and what you do in supporting veterans with traumatic back injuries? Well, I would, you know, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, I would encourage you to check us out on www.pva.org. That's our main website. Uh, there's a lot of information on there. Um, you can be, you know, we like to get feedback from anyone. Uh, we're, we're more than happy to engage in any setting. Uh, you know, I, it's not my job to, uh, to raise funds, but there's always a way there where you can find out about donating to PVA, either through direct mail or online. There's, we have a, a lot of programs that, uh, that are targeted at that. And, you know, we try to, we, uh, you know, we have such a breadth of programs that we support that we, you know, we appreciate every bit of support that we can get. Oh, fantastic. Carl Blake, Executive Director for Government Affairs of the Paralyzed Veterans of America. Carl, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you all, and you all have a nice day. Yeah, well, you thanks, too. Carl. Thanks a lot, thank Carl. You, Carl. Uh, when we come back, we're going, to, we're going to talk about the Pope's recent visit to the Middle East and another foreign policy coup inside the administration. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, 
scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. to truly make 
a global community out of out of his term. And it's about bloody time. There are a billion of us in this world, and yes, we can help the process. But he, you know, Pope Francis uh, visited uh, the third holiest site in Islam while in Jerusalem. <coughs> and refer to Jews and Islams as our brothers and sisters. Carl, you, you, you're very close to the Israeli question. You, you, you've seen a lot of things happen in Israel. When you look at the Pope uh, meeting with, you know, with clerics from the Muslim community as well as very, very lucrative rabbis in the Jewish community inside Israel, what, as, as, as a Jewish person, what does that tell you about what the Pope's trying to do? Well, the interesting thing is, is that, I mean, I've got a whole list of things here, but uh, each side took them to places where they wanted to make their points. Uh, they went to uh, uh, one of the walls between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, and, and the Pope touched the wall, kissed the wall, etc. Uh, when they came to Israel, uh, they took him to the Wailing Wall, uh, where he took a, 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 a copy of, that he wrote of our father, uh, and he folded it up and put it in the, uh, in the wall between the stones. Uh, they took him to um, uh, a, uh, a cemetery that's dedicated to people who have died from terrorist attacks, and Netanyahu pointed out that in 1994, that uh, there was this uh, 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 explosion in a community center in, in Brazil. Uh, Argentina. Argentina. Argentina, sorry. And, and, they, and, and they pointed that out to them. So they were going back and forth. I think, I think and, 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 and the, some of the articles said that, you know, here the Pope is trying to do what the ancient uh, Catholic Church did, and that is, to come in as a person who solves problems, brings people together, and I say, great, if let him come, let him go to his apartment, let him pray, and hopefully something will come out of it. Carl, how, how, how prolific and, and how much meaning was there when the Pope went to uh, Yad Vashem? which is the National Holocaust Museum in Israel, and actually kissed the hands of many of the survivors as a sign of honor in, in both the Jewish and Christian faith. Uh, it, that was very solemn, but it sent a huge message to people of all faith, don't well, you believe? It, first of all, it, it validated the Holocaust, which there are many people out there that are saying the Holocaust never existed. He also kissed the hand of a woman who had been saved by a Catholic family at the time. So, I mean, he was doing all sorts of things on both sides to, to show that he was, he was above, above it all and, uh, uh, and, and wants to really do something to try to bring the situation together and try to make something where no one has been able to do it since 1948. Uh, Denise, you know, when we, when we look at the, at the Pope, who in this instance traveled with a couple of imams from the Muslim faith to several Muslim uh, uh, holy sites, you know, we, we look at that when he goes to Haram al-Sharif, also known as the Temple Mount in, in the Jewish faith, which has been a, a, a tremendous source of tension between Tel Aviv and the Palestinians. He, 
does, does that help give hope for a sign of peace that might be prevalent, that could be found Absolutely. when somebody like the Pope actually goes to a contentious site? I mean, he is now the new power broker. I mean, if you look at the history, if you look at the history of Catholicism and Islam and Judaism, we come from the same area. The Bible, the Quran, and the Torah reference the same issues. They are all based off of the same ideals. And so for the Catholic Pope to come into this is huge. I mean, it's not something we ever would have done in the past. I think people would have been a little bit reticent about doing this. But now to come in... It's a new player, and it's one that doesn't have a history like others, and it's one that could bring people together. Alan Moore, you know, we, we hear the words of, of Pope Francis during this trip where he's talking to the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. This is after he went to the Dome of the Rock, according to the BBC, took off his shoes and, uh, and, and walked into the, the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, where he says that we need to learn, quote-unquote, to love one another as brothers and sisters, and he continues to say with the Grand Mufti of, uh, of Jerusalem that, quote, may we learn to understand the suffering of others, may no one abuse the name of God through violence. It, it, it seems that it, it's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost naive to think that his, his voice, his words, are they strong enough to parlay into some sort of coming together? Is it enough to maybe re-spark talks? I doubt it, but and I wouldn't call him a power broker, but I would call him this power, this powerful force, this wonderful symbol of what Christianity means, which is to reach across all barriers to not place one, including himself, above everyone else, but at their level, these symbolic things that he does, the people he reaches out to, the people he touches. On Good Friday this last, this last season, he did what he's done before, which is he washes the feet of young people, of females, of people who are not Christian. The, this kind of, of magnanimous gesture of reaching across barriers that others have never uh, reached out, the the very modest way in which he lives is a terrific, fabulous, and powerful reminder of what simple gestures can mean. Having said that, I don't. I'd love to think that that it that it might be part of a breakthrough. I think it's part of a much larger piece. I'm 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 afraid that. The, that the last major effort that uh, Secretary of State John Kerry has been so invested in and worked so hard on has has really led to nothing. I don't see this jump-starting it, but I but I would love to see this same kind of gesture occur uh, from visiting political types as well as visiting religious types, and I would love to see a time where some where where an, a visitor and the members of the U.S. Congress do this pretty regularly. They will go there. They will go to Israel. They'll go to the spots of Charles and they will go to the West Bank. Um, and 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 they will meet. They will go to some of the, the great Christian shrines. But typically, they're they're surrounded by locals wherever they go. Wouldn't it be great if they could get uh, uh, a pope or a president to travel? 
with a mixed religious group to have Christians, Jews, and, and Muslims moving together across these borders into these places. Um, it's a, it, 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 is, it is a great thing to do. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. Carl Tubin. Well, I, I think the leadership of the Pope, and, and one of the things that he said uh, during the trip is that each side is going to have to give up something. And coming from him, I think is is very very important. I mean, you know. Well, that goes to his quote. I mean, the, the Pope, uh, while me, while at the Al Aqsa Mosque, right. said that people of all religions need to quote work together for justice and peace. Right. Which is a which is a very very yeah. deep phrase coming out of this Pope. Right. There's no question that he's obviously scored points with uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu. He had a private meeting with uh, Shimon Peres right. and, and several key rabbis from Israel. Well, he, he and Perez have he and Perez have known each other for a while, and he respects him very very much. And that's why he asked Perez to come to this prayer meeting instead of Netanyahu. Now, and Netanyahu seemed to okay. That's fine. But at the same time, Mahmoud Abbas, who had some time with the Pope, was very positive about his trip to Jerusalem in particular, as opposed to his general trip to the Middle East. You know, for Mahmoud Abbas, is what we're seeing out of the Pope a lesson for maybe our current administration, our current political climate, to saying, look, at some point we're going to have to deal with these people? Did I'm not sure it's going to be a lesson to the political leaders and the true sense of politics, but we will see others elbowing each other on the religious side and saying, hey, wait a second, if the Catholic Pope, and by the way, we have fought battles and wars be between Catholics and Protestants, so it's not as if we have been clean in this in the past. If the Catholic Pope can come in and make these demonstrations of not only good faith, but just, just so different than Benedict and so different than the past, then other religious leaders are going to look and say, hey, wait a second, what can I do? Yeah. And that gives them a little bit more space to operate where they may not have had that opportunity in the past. Uh, Alan Moore, there are some critics of Pope Francis calling him a very fallible pope. Uh, there, there are some believe that he may be, in some of the truest sense, selling out the true basis of Catholicism. Is, 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 is that just people trying to keep that the old guard? Look, there is nobody in the world who does anything visible, political, that doesn't have some detractors. I will say of Pope Francis, he's had fewer detractors than just about anybody else on the public scene that I've seen <laughs> in a, you know, in a generation. In a generation. <laughs> I mean, this guy gets the love from American Catholics like we've never seen from American uh, Protestants like we've never seen from American Jews like we've never seen from American Muslims like we've never seen and my guess is that it's true all over the world so does he have detractors sure who doesn't but this guy has got so few and today there were they were reporting just uh, just a little while ago that that uh, that he uh, has apparently leaving the door open on the issue of celibacy for priests. Well, you know, it's, been, it's about time because they, they have so shrunken the target group of people who might be willing to serve as priests 
that sadly they've got a lot of people who a, a disproportionate number whose personal sexuality was was outside the mainstream in a way that caused harm to a great number of innocents well if you want to if you want to serve uh, the people in the Catholic Church you need priests who are pretty stable pretty normal a lot of them are going to be married so uh, I mean the Americans have been out on that issue for a long time so are people in other countries but here again I'm not I, I don't know when something might happen here but this is the kind of guy is that would that please everybody of course not but might it be in the best interest of the church and of nations where the church is a major player it would works for me Carl Tubin, you know there have you know talking about detractors from the Pope there are some in the conservative Jewish community most of them uh, very prominent Hasidic Jewish rabbis in Israel who thought that the Pope's visit to Jerusalem to a, a Jewish holy site as well as uh, a Muslim holy site was not only uncalled for but almost a insult to to Jews and the Jewish faith. I mean, is 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 the Pope somebody that could actually break through some of the cracks of Hasidic Jews in Jerusalem to say, look, we do have to love each other as brothers and sisters? Listen, we can't even crack that that situation. <laughs> I mean, you've got to realize that, that you've got to realize that. Ten thousand Hasidic Jews uh, came to Ben Gurion and say, "We have to study, we have to learn, and you have to you have to uh, supply us with the money to do that." Now there are about a hundred thousand or more, and we're still subsidizing them. And now they're being told they have to go into the military. Right, exactly. So you know, I I I love it. Uh, I think that what the Pope has done. This week is is a great step forward. Uh, I think it, it, it's going to be very very interesting to see what happens after this prayer meeting or whatever, and and whether the Vatican can really um, uh, do something positive in this in this situation. And stranger things have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I got to I got to tell you something. You know, looking. This actually might get me to go back to being a Catholic. If, I mean, I got to tell you something. I might actually leave the Anglican Church and go back to being a Catholic. It, it, you know, along with the fact I love the bells and smells. Uh, you know, the the, the Pope. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I the, the Pope truly does make recovering Catholics like myself. He, he gets yeah. it. He's a modern-day Pope, and we kind of like this. Uh, with that, another story that broke over the weekend, which I thought was quite funny, and just want to talk about it for a few. The Obama administration continues to screw up national security on an ungodly basis. The, the Obama administration over the weekend outed a, the CIA station chief in Afghanistan in a press release while the president was visiting an, an unannounced visit to uh, our troops in Afghanistan. That's a big oops. Alan Moore, um, and yet nobody's lost their job over this. How is it that this administration can't get out of their own way when it comes to issues regarding national security? Well, yeah, this was a, this was a freaky thing. They're, they're, they've ordered up another investigation. You know, they 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 do this micro stuff, 
They get into these little things. They announce certain very small initiatives, and yet they're constantly surprised at big things going on in the world and in this government. Um, this is a case. The president secretly goes into Afghanistan on Memorial Day to meet the troops. Pretty good idea, you right. know. It's it's high risk. It's 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 uh, it's chancy. It's problematic. He's, he was about to, you know, a couple days from making the announcement that came out today that that yes. We're we're going to stop uh, uh, the the uh, combat by the end of this year, but we're going to we're going to keep uh, almost 10,000 troops there probably for the next two years. Well, that that's not as many as some people wanted, but a lot more than some people were were, were thinking might might stay. And they there were only 15 people traveling with them, and one of whom was a guy I guess who's the uh, station chief for the CIA. And they some some. Lower-level people put a list together. Here's the 15 people traveling with the president, and they have this guy, and he's named and and with with apparently a title of station chief. The title chief. of station chief. So, that pretty much puts up a billboard that says, "Hey, I'm CIA." It was, it was a reporter. It was a reporter for the Washington Post who looked at these things, saw this thing, said, "They don't normally do this. What's this all about?" And he asks about it, and oops, and then. <laughs> They, they, they all the subsequent uh, releases didn't have that name in it, which helped call attention to it. Screw-ups do happen. And, uh, and, and some poor soul and his boss and that guy's boss are dying right now. Just dying <laughs> yes, because uh, that person's probably going to have to be reassigned, although that person's probably in a pretty well-protected According to several sources, uh, that the station chief, it, it wasn't a huge screw-up because the station chief in Afghanistan was known by the Afghani government as being, hey, look, we're not going to cover this for you. This guy is who he is. That's pretty common. That's yeah. pretty common yeah. that, 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 the, that, the, that the local government will, will know um, and especially in a place where, like, with, with so much U.S. presence. But there's no question that it's an embarrassment and a screw-up. Um, and, you know, we'll know more about it in a week or two when they've completed their investigation. Investigation, and these poor yeah. guys now serving in Antarctica. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Carl there, 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 were, there have been other um, station chiefs who have been outed uh, similar to this, maybe not the same way, and they have immediately brought them back to the United States. So we haven't heard yet whether this fellow has been yeah. I, I don't think that determination has been made. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a bizarre situation. The, the Americans in Afghanistan operate with so much protection around them, unlike in some countries, that they may be able to leave the guy there because he's already He's already hugely protected in the compound. Down, but he probably will have to come back. Well, mean, you mean that Congress gave them money to, to support our... Um, Diplomats and others were maybe they didn't give it to some other place. Like Benghazi? Yeah. Yes. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, are you supporting the Benghazi investigation, Carl? No, no, oh, how quickly we changed. Sounds like it. It sounds like it to me. Like hey, it. this is now my favorite part I'm of the being show. Very facetious. Oh, oh, that's sarcasm. Very subtle. Very subtle, Carl. This is now my favorite part of the show where we where we call. Tell me a story. We talk about the latest news and you end up gossip going around the Beltway, inside and out. Denise Krepp, tell me a story. There is an independent in Washington, D.C., who is uh, considering making a run for Congress against Eleanor Holmes Norton. Um, if this happens, this could be a very interesting year for D.C. politics, because in D.C., once you win the Democratic primary, you are assumed to have won the November elections. Well, that doesn't appear to be the case. 
there is uh, an independent running for mayor. His name is David Canyon. He's running against a Democrat. And now former Republican, by the former way. Former Republican, and now there appears possibly be an independent that's considering running for uh, Congress. Uh, more news as they uh, unfold. Interesting. Uh, Alan Moore, tell me a story. Well, you guys are used to me regularly just beating. Wait, up. wait, 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 wait! Is this a Harry Reid story? Yeah, well, I'm. It, it's it relates to Did Harry Reid. You're you're used to me beating up on Harry Reid, and today I'm going to give him a shout out for showing very uncharacteristic restraint on something that happened by an old friend of mine. Jay Rockefeller, the retiring senator from, from West, Virginia. West Virginia, who I've known since the day he arrived in the Senate, and, and I consider him a friend, and I have a lot of respect for him, but for reasons unknown, a couple times in the last month, he has, in public situations, uh, said that, that some of the, uh, the, the Republican anger and distress about Obamacare and other and other government policies is because uh, the president has the wrong skin color. Ow. And he got a whole bunch of pushback in, oh. in committee from his colleague uh, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, from others who are stepping up. And he's saying, well, I'm not saying it's just about race. And the problem is when you bring race into it, it is impossible to not say it's much about race. Are there people who don't like Obama because of his color? Absolutely. Have to be. Are there, there are also people, people who there are also people who love Obama because of his color and will look past mistakes. It's that it, there it, does it even out I don't begin to know. But when somebody goes into that place, they're looking for trouble. Harry Reid uncharacteristically said, You know something? This is between those guys. I think I'm just going to stay out of it and let it play out without me. Way to go, Harry. What a subtle, subtle shout-out to Harry Reid by Alan Moore. Wow. Carl Thune, tell me a story. Okay, this is very appropriate uh, for... Is for, it this decade? Uh, sort of. Sort of. Uh, <laughs> killing me, Carl. Uh, there killing were, me. There were two popes that died one month after, after the other. Yeah. And... Um, uh, I, at that point in my life, was very, you know, into pop and circumstance, so I watched... We call it Bells and Smells. Whenever. It's awesome. I, okay. Right. I watched the coronation of both of the popes. So I'm sitting in synagogue, and um, they're... Um, Wait a minute, you're Jewish? Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> you know that. Can you, Justin? I'm sitting in synagogue, and the whole portion is the coronation of King David. So I'm sitting there and I'm reading along and, and all of a sudden I realize why is this so familiar to me? And I have the two uh, brothers at the synagogue who were the stalwarts of the synagogue and I, I kind of look at each of them and I said, what's going on here? Why is this so familiar to me? And they each took an elbow and hit me in, in the side and said, you dummy, the coronation of King David is, is, how, is the, the coronation, coronation of the, of the Pope. Pope. Yep. <laughs> very good story and somewhat somewhat relevant. Impressive. Right. Yeah, Thank you, Carl. Uh, my 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 tell me a story is the fact that uh, if you've been listening to backroom politics over the past three years, uh, we you you've heard that we've done well with limited funding and limited technology, and we've done a great job. 
we first of all have to thank our listeners. 25,000 every week strong, we cannot thank them enough. And as a result, we have now started to bring you better quality audio, better quality production. We have started a Kickstarter campaign. So if you go to our website, if you go to www.blogtalkradio.org, if you go to www.backroompolitics.org, you will see a link to our Kickstarter campaign. Great video produced by our producer, Brent Sullivan, and his team up there at Syracuse University. We have a Kickstarter program that is trying to raise money so we can get lapel mics, so we can bring you higher quality audio every week when we bring you the best political talk show that you've never heard of. So if you love what you hear on Blog Talk Radio, if you love what you hear here on Backroom Politics specifically, please go to backroompolitics.org. We ask you to please, if you love the show, contribute a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. Help us get to the goal of $3,000. We are a nonprofit. None of us get paid for this. I've been paying for a majority of this out of my own pocket. It is just a labor of love, but we believe that there is something greater in this show. So if you love hearing us every week, please go to backroompolitics.org, click on our Kickstarter campaign, and contribute anything that you can to help us bring you the best political talk show that you've never heard of. With that, on behalf of Denise Kreft, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, hopefully Congressman Alan Bob Hines will be back next week. Uh, special shout out to our, what? What? Yeah, special shout out to our producer, Brent Sullivan up in Syracuse. Appreciate all your help. Special shout out to Yarden Kakan, our newest member of the Backroom Politics team. Thank you, Yarden. Fantastic. What do you want, Carl? Happy birthday to... Go oh, to Gail, to, to Gail Ryman. Yeah, yeah. Happy, Bob, birthday, happy Gail. birthday to Gail Ryman. Forgot about that. It's Gail's birthday. Happy, happy, happy birthday. Many, many years. Also, Chandani. And with that, this is uh, Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, thirteen thirty-one F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. Carl, you want to do it? The place to be. Exactly. Why can't Bob get that? We'll see you next week here live Tuesdays, four to six for the best political show you've never heard of. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.